welcome to Season 3, Episode 10 of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee with Drs. Justin Winsenberg and Stephen Jones. In this podcast, we look to explore truth, beauty, wisdom, and goodness at the intersection of faith and scholarship. Today, we finish Series 2 in the conversation about Justin's dissertation. In our conversation, we talk a little more about speech act theory, and I ask Justin whether his method unnecessarily complicates reading biblical texts. But first, here are our highlights, lowlights, and insights for the week. So have you had any coffee today? Yeah, I've had some coffee already. I stopped at Caribou in a hurry on the way in and got a nitro cold brew. And now I'm, I'm hitting up a Starbucks double shot espresso, which is the (laughs) kind that you can buy in the grocery store because it's been sitting there in your refrigerator. It has. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the last one plus with the semester ending here, I probably need to clean the refrigerator out anyways, just in case. If it's the last one, that must mean it's the end of the semester. Yep. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) And you know, I'm sure I'll be in the office some this summer, but it's just, there could be stretches weeks where a couple of weeks where I don't come in and uh, Mm -hmm. you don't want, you don't want the refrigerator all of a sudden like uh, lose power or something and come back and have two weeks of groceries having sat in there (laughs) (laughs) lunches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in the summer, you usually have time enough to stop by Dunn brothers, which I mean, that's your preferred place, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, although I think I shared, you know, a few, few times ago, um, that my preferred places become caribou just for convenience sake, but yeah, ultimately coffee wise, I definitely prefer Dunn brothers of the major chains. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I need to apologize by the way, just in case. Um, but there is banging going on at crown nonstop, um, because (laughs) they've decided, yeah, they've decided that, that they prefer to have the major construction done by the time that we get back okay, so in they the had fall, to but that it. means they had to get started while we're still here. So you might have to do some magic. Yeah, I heard it. And, I, and in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's just the marching band. And then I remembered there is no marching band. <laughs> no. So you might have to get creative here. Uh, well, if you're we'll, hearing we'll, background we'll just let noise. It be what it is. We'll just have the... What, what, are you, what are you drinking? Do you have any coffee today? Nothing. I have nothing. In, well, okay. I have whoa, a water whoa. over here to the side. I, uh, I did have a French press this morning. Wait, so we're in language mm. school again this week, um, which means getting up and getting going pretty good time. And then, mm-hmm. uh, cause we've got to go across town and, uh, yeah. And then, and then in the break in the middle, um, well, so a couple of days we haven't had coffee before we leave. And then today I was like, let's, let's do that. But then I do have like in, in the break between the two class sessions in the morning I go and often I'll get a coffee and there's that coffee shop I found that is actually quite good. So I get the, the cafe crema there and it's just very nice. nice. Uh, yeah. Little kind of, yeah. Good coffee. Yeah, so, I mean, to ask you, what's it like being back in the classroom, but as a student, yeah, that's a good question. It's it's definitely weird. One of the things we talk about is role deprivation. Um, it, when when you move internationally, I mean, when you leave any kind of a job for a different sort of job, role deprivation mm-hmm. can happen. Uh, but then especially when you move internationally, um, that can be a thing. But yeah, actually, I mean, that ties into to some of what I was thinking about uh, for this week anyway. But um, so I'll come back to that. But I I think it, one of the things that's very strange is to be sitting in a class 
Um, and you know, nobody usually in the classes knows that I'm Dr. Jones, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's meaningless <laughs> because I, you know, uh, yeah, your doctor's I mean, not doing you much good in language no, school there, not. is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Your doctor would do me better in, in language because you had to incorporate German into your PhD, but into your well, dissertation. True, but uh, I'll tell you, it took a, quite a bit of work. It wasn't like I was uh, fluent in German and just all of a sudden went, voila, there it is. Um, it took some <laughs> took some heavy lifting to, I, to get it in there. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you would have gone voila if you were. Uh, no, you're German. right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's the German equivalent phrase, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Now, to me, this is the thing. I think I, when now thinking about it, I'm like, man, being back in the classroom, that sounds absolutely delightful. Mm. Like the thing about being a, a professor, I think, is that you, most professors, I think, make good professors if they are avid learners. Yeah. And I mean, I love learning. I love the classroom more than anything because... Um, well, for one, it's not necessarily like writing papers, or even taking right. exams, although you have that component, but just the engagement with professors and learning the content. I mean, if I could basically find a way to, to take classes and, and learn, like I, I would do it just for mm -hmm. fun. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I think, uh, I think the one thing about language as opposed to some other subjects is it's very personal because like yeah. you're performing it immediately. Right. Um, and so and put on the spot, right. Yeah. Like, all right, you got to go. How, how do you do? <laughs> yeah. And it's, so, so it's, I mean, so you can, um, that's funny. I, I guess this is a good sign. My brain keeps coming up with German words to suggest for what I'm trying to say, but <laughs> um, <laughs> so you can, yeah, you can go and, and reflect on the language and how it works and that sort of thing, which is part of what's fun about learning. Um, I mean, and occasionally like today I had an aha moment in class, which was exciting. Uh, so I, I certainly am enjoying that. Um, but there is also this sense, uh, where, I don't know. It reminds me a bit of when I took statistics, I, I jumped in basically, I had taken statistics one semester, like two weeks. I took a two week uh, statistics class in my undergrad and then no statistics in my master's. And so I think it was probably 15 years after I had taken statistics, I took econometrics, jumped straight into uh, regression analysis and all this. Um, and that felt very much like learning a different language, but I wasn't trying to convey anything that was like who I am as a person. Uh, yeah. and so like, yeah, there's just something about, um, yeah, I mean my, the, the class conversations this week have been things like, uh, what do you think about globalization or what is social justice, which is like tremendously fun stuff to talk about. But then when you're like trying to use language that you have barely a hold on, you know, and then, and then trying to come up with the right grammatical constructions, it's just like, ah, <laughs> so well, I'm asking you about globalization. I mean, the interculturalist, right. You know, and, right. and, and even considering that it's not directly your like topic of your PhD. I mean, there it's got related areas. Yeah, so I definitely wrote some papers in the, in the doctoral program about globalization. So yeah, that would be like me sitting in a, in a language class and then saying, Hey, um, um, tell me your, um, tell me your theological views on, on God. Yeah. With, okay. Right? So and then, then you're like, the now I've got to use who... a different language <laughs> to talk about an area that I can easily talk about in English, but then yeah. I would just be, 
your thoughts are probably more complex than your language allows you to articulate. And you're having that conversation with people who have not necessarily thought about the topic, Mm -hmm. but their language is better than yours. So they end up sounding smarter (laughs) about the topic than you are, even though you've thought a lot more about it. So yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a very strange feeling. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll just go ahead and register that as my low light for the week. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, in, let's include it. So what's your highlight or do you want to, do you want to, uh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Uh, my, my highlight for the week was that we had, uh, just a really nice visit from the, a couple of folks from the national office of Envision. Um, nice. so yeah, so it was really good. We spent, I mean, it was really just two days and we were, Jenny and I were in language school during the morning, so we didn't get to spend that time with them but in the afternoon and then last night we had them over for supper and yeah it was just good it was rich uh it was good to be reminded of the organization more broadly it was good to be able to talk about some of the questions and concerns uh that we have you know which you always any organization you're with there's always that um and then it was yeah it was just encouraging to be able to share things that really matter to us and to be able to hear from them and and yeah they had some good encouraging words for us so yeah i'd say that that was definitely my highlight nice that's great how, how about you what's the highlight been well yeah most of my highlight and my little are kind of work related uh but my highlight was that um i'd been uh invited I, I was part of forming this uh twin cities new testament colloquium yeah, which yeah. is basically professors in the area you know, get together it's been a small group of us but uh one of the other guys who, who helps uh, run it with me he suggested that maybe i should take an opportunity to share some of my work i i used the opportunity here last week to to introduce some of the other uh, folks in the area to to my book that's coming out nice. its content it was a really good conversation but that in of itself wasn't the highlight the highlight was that a former student of ours surprised me by showing up. So shout out to Taylor Pat. I, I was uh, going to guess that's who it was. <laughs> <laughs> shout out uh, in case she's listening. Uh, that was just such a great surprise. Oh, Number one, it was great. great to see her. I hadn't seen her in a long time, uh, but to have her in that context in the environment where, uh, you know, she's heard some, some already about my work through our podcast here, mm-hmm. but I think it was fun to have her at the event and, and just kind of chewing on some things with the rest of us. It's, it's such a good group of folks too that gather and it's been really fun seeing some familiar faces show up every time that we run it. Uh, so, but it, it was just the biggest surprise uh, to see her there. In fact, what happened was, is I had showed up and, and I was talking to the other prof who um, organizes this with me. And I just asked him, Hey, do you, do you happen to know Taylor? And he says, well, I wasn't going to tell you, but she's coming tonight. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a delight. It was, it was quite a, a good surprise. So shout out to Taylor. And that was definitely a highlight, highlight of my, of my week. Nice. Yeah, that's great. So yeah. I guess I already did my low light. Uh, it, what, what about for you? Well, for me, now I, I when I came to work this morning, I was about one hour away uh, work-wise from submitting my book and being done with it, mm-hmm. which uh, I've been working on this project for way too long. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you count from when I started my PhD to the yeah. time that even it was accepted for publication and now on the brink of being ready. And so I was ready to, to give it up to, to say, all right, here we go. I'm done with it. And then I got an email from the publisher saying that they had a couple of things that they would like me to, to change, which unfortunately meant that the whole work I'd done, I think in indexing my book, which oh. is about two weeks oh. worth of work oh. now probably needs to be redone. Oh, no. um, so oh, that is I, I'm, so painful. Oh my oh, goodness. Man. That's not even, I, cause there's like, there's, 
there's the kind of work that's like, okay, I don't want to do this, but this is at least fun. But I yeah. don't enjoy that at all. Indexing is the worst. And I've even, when we were get, got together with these other New Testament profs, I was asking a few of them, well, what do, you, do you do your own indexing? And they're like, no, 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 I don't do my own indexing. And so I'm, I'm a little bummed because I'd put in so much work to get this done and to try to get it done before I leave for vacation. Yeah. And now I'm waiting to hear back from the publisher. Maybe they'll have a solution that's not as drastic as I imagine. But my my gut's telling me they're going to make me do um, some fixing, which the fixes in themselves are actually quite quick. The problem is what it does is it changes the pagination. Uh, um, the pay, you know, it changes the it page change numbers. Consistently or is it... it- is it- That's going to be the question. Okay. Probably not entirely. Otherwise, I could just go into my document, which is an Excel spreadsheet, and basically pump in a formula to yeah. add like plus one to everything. Right. Um, but it's not going to be that easy, I don't think. Oh, so we'll see. Maybe they come back with an easier solution. But it was deflating because I was I really thought that I was in like an hour away from being done. Like, oh, here it is. And uh, That's like, have now- you ever gone hiking in the mountains and like you get to a place where you can see where you're headed and it feels like you're so close. And then you realize you've got all these switchbacks in between you. And oh there. yeah. 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 I would, I would compare it to, um, <laughs> that that's an analogy, but you know, uh, when you've been working on a project for thir- almost 13 years, <laughs> <laughs> when you've been hiking for 13 uh, years and somebody says, well, you're not done yet. <laughs> now we've covered my work here, you know, some on the podcast and, and I'm proud of it. And there's certainly things I think that I, I look back on it, I'm like, I'm really glad um, that I've done this project, but I'm also ready to be done yeah. working on it. Yep. I just, and I'm so grateful for the publishers for having picked it up, but I, I think I just want to be, I want them to take it and be in their hands. So yeah. we'll see. It's not a guarantee. I don't know what he's going to say, but, but we'll, we'll find out. I just got a gut feeling that it does me. I'm not done yet. Yep. Yeah. Later. So anyhow, <sighs> this is a small problem. This is academic, you know, work related types of problems that but are there's, really there's minuscule though, in the big picture. What, what's the hope deferred makes the heart grow weary, something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. 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 So anyhow, that, that's probably my low light. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what's an insight for you? Well, okay. So I'll just stick on the theme. Why not? Although it might come across as me being a complainer then, um, <laughs> which is, um, I am pretty amazed now after having done all this work, it's the, I've never never done a book before, but you think about all these books you have on your shelf, even yeah. ones that you think aren't all that good and how much, how much sweat has gone into these, how much love and, and care has gone into producing these things. It's like you take for granted thinking that they've just got some magic formula that they pump in and then boom, you know, all the formatting set, all the mm-hmm. indexes are produced. But you think about not just how long it took these authors to think up these works and put it on the page, but then the process afterward and everything the publishers are doing. I mean, you know this well. I do, yeah. You know this well because (laughs) you you have your own publishing company, right? So it's like, I think that you just take for granted sometimes. Every time you hold a book in your hands, in some ways, it's just this like work of every author should be proud. Even if yeah. you, at the end of the day, you're like the, the book wasn't that good or it had problems or could have been done this better. It's just something about the sweat equity that goes into it that you think, man, this has been, this has been a lot of work that's gone into getting this thing on the, on the print. So it makes me feel like I'm probably, probably should be a lot less critical 
of any book, any well, book that's out there. <laughs> okay. Yes and no, because like just because somebody's gone through all that work doesn't mean that the book's any good. That's true, but it's still, it reflects like, I think for, maybe I'm overestimating it. Maybe some authors can just pump out junk and not feel like that and connected to their work. pump out junk too. Yeah. And some publishers, but, but I also feel like for some people, you know, at the end of the day, they poured their heart and soul into this. And if, yeah, yeah I might not agree with what they say, or they may be unclear in how they communicate it. And those can certainly be weaknesses present in a lot of works, but at the end of the day, you're still like, Hey, congrats for finishing this thing. (laughs) Well, what's your insight for the week? Well, my insight is so, so in the conversations that we had with our guests from the national office, I realized we got into a couple of topics where I felt competent and I realized that I have not felt competent for about nine months. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this feels nice. Refreshing. I'd forgotten what it feels wow. like to feel competent. And uh, yeah. Well, think about this. You go from a classroom environment where you you are the competent one, right? Mm-hmm, right. You're the one who's who's sharing, you know, the, your wealth of, yeah, as of a professor, experience right? and information. Yeah. And then you go to being a student in a, cl- in a class that you have no, no experience with. And I, I like I, I talked about how I think that would be energizing, but I could also see how that'd be such a different feeling than being the one up in front of the class. Mm-hmm you know, who's, who's imparting your, you know, your experience and, and knowledge on the community to then being the one who you constantly feel like, am I doing any of this right? Am I, right. you know, am I making progress? Well, and I, I have this kind of interesting situation and I, I don't know what to think about it. It'll probably come across as a humble brag and I don't really mean it that way, but so, so I, so there's three letter levels, A, B, and C for mm-hmm. language learning. And, and I spent uh, basically the first seven months of actual, so I did some Duolingo before, which was useful for vocabulary, but not really for like, I had no practical ability with German. And so the first seven months I spent basically in the A level, and then I had one week in the B level, and then I got bumped into the C level, which is not where I necessarily would have placed myself. Um, and, and actually just today I asked the teacher about, it. I was like, I'm, I'm not sure if this is right. And she was like, don't pay attention to the levels. We have you where, where we think it's appropriate for you to be. Um, but what it means is that there are subjects that we're covering in the level that were introduced at a different level. And I never got the introduction. And so I am feeling so incompetent so much of the time uh, and, and you know on the one hand i suppose i could feel I, and i i guess i do feel encouraged to be at the level that i'm at but it, it does mean that my experience in the classroom is that i really do feel like i don't know what i'm doing most of the time so so my little my wins in the classroom are that i'm understanding usually what the teacher's saying i'm usually understanding the conversation that we're having uh but then you know all of the tasks that we're doing i'm like okay wait what Okay. Uh, yeah. Prepositions. And and we're working on stuff that's, that's actually quite fun. Like these, these theoretical abstract conversations are really interesting. You know, like, uh, what is social justice? I, I love playing in that conversation in this new cultural context where it means something different, you know, than, than the conversations we've had in the U S that's, that's super interesting to me. Oh man. But yeah. The feeling of not being competent is something that I'm having to very much live in. Um, so yeah. Anyway. And what does that, what is, and what does that do to you? You know, because I think, you know, that's something I, I, we've talked about before on the podcast, but I think the, the PhD experience, which now that I look back at hindsight, like I think I was 
pretty competent, but mm. I didn't feel that way through yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. And I, like what that feeling does to you, even if it's not entirely true, right. It can really just weigh on you. And, and, and it's like, yeah, I'm not, I remember we had long conversations about that because we both were yeah. experiencing that when we were in class or, or well, not class. I was in class. You were working on your dissertation. Yeah. yeah. It can, it can bring up that kind of feeling can just bring up all sorts of insecurities that, that, I mean, I almost never dealt with on a day-to-day basis because mm-hmm. I just, am not, I'm not generally an insecure person, but then like when you hit certain strides and, or don't hit certain strides, maybe in certain areas that you think you should, it yeah. can really start raising up these feelings that are like, Whoa, I didn't even know that was there. Right, right, right. Well, yeah. Like we had, <laughs> we had this exercise where we were supposed to write a definition of globalization. And I still think <laughs> that mine was one of the better ones, but I had not entirely understood the formula that we were supposed to, or not for me. It's like, okay, write this part and then write the consequences of the definition. I hadn't understood all of that. And so then we were supposed to vote for each other's definitions. And I got the lowest number of votes and, oh, that just killed me because I'm like, no, I studied this. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. But it's, uh, yeah. So voting. Oh, I don't like the voting. That's that definitely interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And then, yeah, I'm thinking about things that I did with my students. I'm like, huh. Okay. They might have been uncomfortable with that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Before we jump into our conversation about Justin's dissertation, we wanted to invite you to send in listener questions through our Patreon channel. They can be about themes we've talked about, questions you have about us, ideas for future episodes, and more. Check it out at patreon.com slash profsandrooms. So we've been talking about different tools that you're using as you create this hermeneutical grid that you apply to Ephesians with the question of, you know, is Ephesians critiquing empire, right? The Roman empire. And um, so we've talked about a few different things in some of the previous segments. What I wanted to ask you about is you talk some about socially constructed reality and the difference between brute fact and an institutional fact. What is all of that? And why does it matter for your project? Well, that part is actually part of speech act theory um, because of the person who who came up with the idea. It's a guy named John Searle, who was a philosopher over at UC Berkeley, who, who by the way, I, I do need to admit, and, I, and this is making me think now a little bit about the ethics of citation, but um, some things have come out recently, some accusations against Searle that mm. are troubling in terms of some sexual misconduct against former mm. you know, teaching aides and things like that. And so, so I... <laughs> I probably need to put something in my work, just acknowledging the, that because the ethics of citation are a little are tricky in those situations, yeah, and, and I don't mean to to push him to the forefront if he's somebody who's a, a known abuser. But his ideas here are relevant for my work, and and one of his ideas is that there's a difference between these things called brute facts and institutional facts. And what the difference is, is that take, take for example, um, like metal. And this is complicated, so I don't want to get too thick in the weeds, but somebody could say like that circular object is metal. Mm-hmm. And that is in many ways a brute fact. It's a, it's a fact irrespective of whether there's agreement 
on it in human institutions. Mm. So someone could say the composition of that metal is 97% copper. Now, now that involves interpretive procedures to arrive at that. But the truth is, is it either is or it isn't irrespective of whether people agree on it institutionally. Mm -hmm. When it becomes an institutional fact is when someone says that's worth one penny. Right. You see, and the difference is, is that, that the one, the composition of the metal is true irrespective of whether anyone agrees on that. Right. It either is a certain composition of metal or it isn't. But when it comes to money, money is in interesting because money has no meaning apart from human institutions who have agreed that it carries that meaning. It's a constructed meaning. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, so I'm thinking about at some of the markets around here, like the uh, the outdoor markets, you can go and you can buy uh, old money that at one point was very valuable and now is almost worthless, right? It's only yeah, yep. uh, worth as a collector's item. So, you know, uh, Reichmarks or whatever. And, and so that that piece of paper or that coin has almost no value because there's no institution that currently has the fact established that it is worth something. Yeah, but it's still an object, right? It's an object irrespective of how it's used. Mm -hmm. And I think that right? probably for me, I, I would probably draw the line for what is a brute fact further back maybe the oh, yeah. Yeah. average coming from the interculturalist perspective. And that's why I think my example is problematic even, right? Because then we'd have to talk about how we would agree what constitutes a metal. Mm -hmm. well, exactly. you know, all of those things, we got to go further back, but to leave it simple for now, the, the, there's a reason I'm invoking this for this project. Um, and that is that this, that something like, here's the example, something like a metal can count as value under certain institutional mm -hmm. agreement. Yep. Right. So one thing can count as something else in an, in a given context. Does that make sense? It makes so, sense. so for example, I, I, I'm remembering where you go with this idea of yeah, something counts well, as something. Exactly. It's going to be very important for the rest of my work. And, and this actually it also comes out when I was in Papua New Guinea in the, in the 2000s, I learned that there were still several tribes that use shell money. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, they're not exchanging metal, they're exchanging shells like from the seashore and they're counting it as, as part of their trading. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what's interesting is that if you, if I handed you a shell and I asked you what this is, you know, we could talk about it's sort of brute fact of what it's composed of or something like that. Or even it's but what aesthetic it means, value, right? I could or say it's aesthetic value. Yeah. But then I bring it to Papua New Guinea and all of a sudden it has a different constructed reality to mm -hmm. it because of how that those institutions and institution that I'm using loosely, yeah. those tribes have determined that it has this or that value. Institution more in the sense of an acknowledged pattern, right? Bingo. Yep. Yep. So here, here's what, here's why it's important for Searle. For Searle, I mean, as a philosopher, he actually extends this into language. And he says, just like a, a piece of paper can count as money if an institution agrees on it, certain words can count as another thing in a given context. Mm. And so what I start to look at is how status is an institutional fact. Um, so, so for example, in the Roman empire, wait, wait, wait. let's, let's back up for just a second. Cause I think yeah, maybe yeah. there's a simple e example of this. So, great, great. uh, I see somebody walking down the hallway at the college in Minnesota. I say, hi, how are you? That counts as a simple greeting. Bingo. If I yep, ask in the context of, a, of passing in the hallway, right. If I ask a similar question 
here in Germany, it is a confusing greeting. And and so assuming that yep. the person yep. understands the same language, because it counts as an inquiry as to how the person is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great example. And I even remember running into that at crown when I was a student and we had uh, an MK, you know, who, who grew up overseas and I passed her in the hallway and I said, Hey, how's it going? And she immediately stopped and she started talking about mm-hmm. how it was going. And I felt a little bit like, Oh, we're just passing in the hallway here. Right. Didn't you know that she took it as something else? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, and, and I do remember her sharing with me some frustration about how she feels like everyone's always asking her how she's doing and doesn't care. And I think, there was a misfire in the communication and a speech act because I thought I was doing one thing with my words Mm -hmm. and she understood it differently. So this is back to locution, illocution and perlocution. I guess we never even defined those. Is this a good time to do that? Uh, If you want to, I mean, they're basically just three levels of speech acts and one of them has to do with the meaning of the words, which is one of them has to, that's locution. Locutions are, are words and word constructions. And so the ice is thin over there. That locution is those words. Right. Um, the illocution is what you're trying to do with those words. Are you giving a warning or are you giving a directive? Mm-hmm. Are you giving a greeting or are you inquiring? Right. Right. That's an illocutionary question. Then there's this last aspect of language, which we call perlocution and what Austin called perlocution. And that's actually what someone, the intended response that they're hoping or the effect that they're hoping to have upon the person by using the words. So for example, the ice is thin over there. If the illocution is, I'm giving a warning, the perlocution might be step back from that spot on the frozen lake. If the elocution is, I'm giving a social warning, the perlocution might be shut up. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. It's just three, three different components to how language works that we're trying to analyze and examine. And why that's important is because then there's questions of if someone wants to subvert the Roman empire, on what level of language are they going to do it on? Mm. They could do it on the level of the locution. Right. Like I am against the Roman empire. Bingo. Yep. There you go. That's a pretty explicit locutionary challenge to Rome. Mm -hmm. But it could happen on another level where you could use words that aren't even mentioning Rome, but that are intending to subvert on that next level. And and I think my example of of the Afghanistan, you know, Americans need to be careful how we how we act overseas. Right. There's nothing explicitly subversive on the locutionary level, but it could be trying to to do something subversively on the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a third level, which would be getting people to act or hoping that people will act in a way that is challenging imperial ways of doing things. So, so it, it's complicated in Ephesians because how would Paul, if he wanted to, have challenged the empire on these various levels. And what what I end up doing with this brute fact, institutional fact, is I end up pointing out that there are some things that are true only because an institution has decided upon it. And one of those truths are certain honorific titles Mm. and honorific honorific, uh, honors (laughs) that are given to the Roman emperor. The problem is, is that in one context where those honors are granted to a person to grant them to someone else would be subversion. Mm-hmm. So this is how X, this one thing can count as subversion in this context, 
because of the agreed upon institutional fact. So for example, if, if you're, if everybody has agreed um, that dollars are the only way that you can pay for things in the U S if I go around and I start tr- trying to use shells for money, I could just be a fool or I could be trying to subvert the system mm. because we have this agreed upon institutional fact. And I am purposefully trying to bypass the agreed upon institutional fact. And I suppose if you got enough people circulating shells, then uh, it could be noticed as a subversive act. Yeah. So, so what I end up saying, because there's this dispute on, well, Jesus is called Lord and we know the emperor was called Lord. And is that actually a challenge to the emperor? And Jesus is called Lord in Ephesians. And so many people are focusing on the meaning of the word that we translate as Lord in Greek. Back to the word study type approach. Yeah. They're looking at it on a locutionary level. What do the words say? What do the words mean? What are the words challenge? But what I, what I try to do is I try to take it to the next level and say, yeah, okay, here's the meaning of the word. But what about the whole conceptualization of the Roman emperor's privileges, rights, and duties? And when we find that strikingly similar things are placed upon Jesus and Ephesians, mm-hmm. would that have been a challenge to the Roman institutional fact? So the illocution might in that case be... I'm challenging empire or I'm yep. challenging yep. Caesar's claim to divinity or I'm challenging yep. or, or the empire's view on this or that is invalid or I'm promoting yep. Jesus as the better Lord. Yep. Yeah. And plenty of scholars will come along and say, no, no, no. Paul never says that he doesn't say it And what they mean is he doesn't say it on the locution. And my point is, is you're absolutely right, but that means nothing as to whether he's actually subverting. Which is the question of, does it count as subversion? Bingo. Yes, yes, exactly. So this then, happens all the time. It sounds very complicated, but if you think about it in regular life, like you were talking about in institutions, right? How you can say certain things that sometimes are not very explicit at all that mm-hmm. might intend to uh, disrespect or challenge or maybe even... How did you put it? Insult, I think I uh, said. Insult, yeah, <laughs> insult a person. And, and what's funny is one of the speech act people that I use in my work says that actually what, what he, he believes is that those kinds of strategies and language are actually more effective than just coming out and saying mm. it. So, so to say, to, to come out and say this person's an idiot might, might you know, it might work well you, as right? an insult, but, but sometimes insults are more effective if they're less explicit. Yeah. Well, and of course, so much of that depends on cultural context and there's all these yep. layers. But yep. I, I think it's also interesting to think about the perlocutionary thing. What might the author of Ephesians have been doing if, if the author is saying I'm challenging you know, by these words, I'm challenge. What I'm doing is to challenge Caesar, or to promote Jesus. The the question: What is the perlocutionary impact? What do I want to accomplish by that? Might be yeah. to say something like, "Give your allegiance to Jesus and not to Caesar." Right? Is that right? Yep. It could be that. It could be stop participating in the imperial cults. Ah, now, yeah, there's yeah. major questions on whether or not any Christians were doing that and how 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 important the imperial cults were. But we can get into that later. <laughs> but but again, that's that's actually there, there's this ideology about Jesus that's being cast that might have an assumed, hoped for response that actually calls them away from participation in imperial rituals or or or, or concepts. And that. Again, the question of is that, does it have to be explicitly stated? I'm calling you away from you know, yeah. imperial cults or whatever, or yep. can it be implied? And then of course, some of the context becomes really 
uh, important in terms of trying to figure out, well, why would the author have said it that way if they, if that's what they yeah. were saying? And this is where, when it comes to how someone might be, be called to act differently, we have to take into consideration their context and how they would have heard it. Especially, and we don't know the answer of how empirical people would have heard it because person A and person B would have very well heard it differently. But what we can speculate on, and actually it's not just pure speculation, is what would what's the hoped for aspect that's embedded in the text right. that the implied audience is supposed to pick up on. Mm, interesting. I think it's interesting too, because in a letter like Ephesians, there are clear calls to action Right. Yeah. And so you can look yeah. at it and say, well, there's the perlocution right there. It's it's in the locution, but that doesn't mean there isn't also perlocution happening outside of the locution or, or you yeah. know, through these other speech acts, which is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And there's disputes, you know, there's the classic, you know, case of Paul saying, don't be drunk with wine in Ephesians 518, mm -hmm. you know, and there's those who say that, well, there's a perlocutionary, they wouldn't use this language, but there's a fact Paul's hoping for. And that isn't just that they would stop drinking, right? but that actually they would stop participating in the worship of Bacchus or Dionysus uh, yeah. because, because part of their worship setting is to get into drunken Bacchanalia and orgies and all these other things mm. as part of their participation in worship. Now there's problems with that interpretation of Ephesians 5. It's not universally accepted, but it is seeing that the language, it never says stop participating in the worship of this God. It never says that explicitly, but could it mean it? Right. You see, and, and this gets into, well, then at what point, what are the controlling factors around when the unsaid can be interpreted, right? Because otherwise, can it just mean anything you want it to mean? Mm. And this is where I think the question of the relationship between the empirical setting and the implied and the relationship between the empirical audience and the implied all comes into play. Yeah. You can't propose a meaning that would have been historically implausible for its time. Mm -hmm. Like the author of Ephesians didn't say, make sure you pay your electricity bill. Yes. Or, or what if I, what if someone says, see, Paul, Paul is clearly here speaking against uh, first century people who are drinking their whiskey. <laughs> you see, that, that would have been historically impossible because like, no, 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 there wasn't whiskey then you see, but, but, but so that's the kind of thing that emerges is that you have to use what we know about the historical situation and mm -hmm. historical people to, to, to reconstruct the implied right. so that these interpretations are plausible and you have to be able to demonstrate it, not just through the language or the wording of the text, but also it's theology and it's overarching um, narrative structure, which is something we also we could get into another time. <laughs> so the last several segments we've been talking about the whole hermeneutical framework that you build in your dissertation, which we, I mean, we didn't even get to everything and it was a lot because <laughs> there's just, yeah, it's funny because yeah. it's just one chapter, right? Chapter two of your dissertation is what we've been talking about in this series, but it's, I don't know, it, it's super interesting how you bring together speech act theory, uh, implied and empirical author context and audience, you know, and then the, the question of con socially constructed reality, institutional facts and brute facts and how all those things come together. 
And all of that leaves us with this, uh, well, and, and then the piece we didn't really mention, but is probably worth at least acknowledging is the whole question of narrative hermeneutic, which I find really interesting and don't know very much about. So at some point sure. we should come back to that. But I think the whole thing that we're left with at the end of this series here is like, this is really complicated. And yeah, do you think could... Could someone say you're just overcomplicating this? Mm. To some extent, I, I think we have to keep in mind that for <laughs> there, there's a little bit of a difference between my dissertation or my book that will be coming out and just the concepts themselves and that the implied audience of my book is this is a PhD yeah. written for PhD committees, written at a PhD level and mm -hmm. conversing with other scholars in the field. Right. This isn't written for the person sitting in the church. It's That's just the truth. not written for your freshman New Testament student. No, it doesn't mean it wouldn't necessarily be relevant to them or of interest to them, but the audience, the implied audience is not them. Mm -hmm. And so by that nature, that has to be carried, that the conversation has to be carried out with a level of complexity that that engages the scholarly conversations and that aren't engaging the conversations in the pews at church. It's interesting. Right? So, so there is a sense that it's overly complicated and that, that, that it's, it's being had on a level that is of PhD, you know, uh, uh, conversation mm -hmm. quality, <laughs> but it isn't overly complicated. And that I think the concepts themselves actually are quite understandable mm -hmm. as much as much as maybe we've messed it up for some folks here, complicated it. Um, I can't give you my reading of Ephesians without laying these tools out on the table to right. say, if this conversation is going to change regarding whether Ephesians challenges the empire, we have to use different tools than what have been used. And when we use them, here's what emerges. Right. And, and that actually, without even having to talk implied empirical and all this, we could just, just get down to saying, well, 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 is Ephesians anti-empire or not? And then I could say, here's where I think it is. Here's where I think it isn't. Mm -hmm. Here's the reasons why. And we could get into that. And that would be a much less complicated conversation. Um, so it is complicated because of the implied audience, but it is also not that complicated and that the concepts I think are actually pretty, pretty understandable. Yeah. So then it's the, I think, yeah, that's important to keep in mind that who this is written for is a very particular audience. I'm not even in that very audience, particular. right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, I've inserted myself in as an empirical reader, but I'm not an implied reader. Yeah. The implied readers are all the objectors and all the acceptors of imperial critical readings of the New Testament. And I'm trying to jump into the conversation and say, hold on, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And if you mm -hmm. do, here's what it leads to. That is the problem with my work is that it's got a narrow implied audience that isn't going to feel like it was intended for me if you're a person who's just sitting in the church. But what I will say is this, the interpretation of Ephesians, I think very much so is not just relevant for the people in the churches, but it would have been easily understandable to a person who has no ability to even, um, to even read in the first century. Mm. So they're illiterate, but they're hearing Paul's letter read into mm -hmm. their congregations. And these things are firing for them. Because, because it's the world they live in. Because what you're, you're not trying to impose a PhD reading on Ephesians no. and say, this is how a first century person would have understood it. You're trying to say, how do we get closer to how they would have understood it? 
they wouldn't have had to understand speech act theory applied right. empirical. They wouldn't have. They would have picked up on these speech acts. Inherently, they would have picked up on it. The reason why I have to use speech act theory to show it is because we're not aware of it mm-hmm. because we're thinking of language differently often, right? And so they would they would understand when a, a subversion is is made uh, of the Roman Empire in the same way that someone might understand me taking a jab at Af- Af- Biden's you know Afghanistan policy or or Al Gore in, in George Bush presidency, mm-hmm. right? So so in that way, I think. The tools that I'm using sound complicated and the, and the nomenclature or the, the wording and the, uh, about their, their methods are complex and overly wordy, but the concepts themselves are actually not that complicated and they just happen in everyday life without us sometimes even being aware of it. So what would you say to somebody who said, you're making scripture harder to read? Wrestle with this question a lot as a New Testament professor. I mean, here's the reason why there are times, and I think some, some of maybe our past students who might be listeners might sympathize with what I'm about to say. <laughs> there are times where in my classes, I think to myself, if you don't know Roman history, and if you don't have a really strong grasp of this or that biblical text, could you even understand this text in the way that I'm proposing it? And sometimes I feel like my answer is No. You wouldn't be able to understand it. Then the question is, is, well, am I offering an elitist interpretation mm. where the Bible is only understandable to people with master's or PhD degrees in theology? And I wrestle with that question because it is a valid one and there's a danger in this approach and that it assumes that. Mm. What I do want to say though is this, uh, two things. Number one, some of the reason why we have to do this kind of work isn't because you have to have a PhD to do it. It's because of the social distance that we have between us and the original implied audience. Right. So, so, you know, 2000 years from now, somebody might have to really do a lot of heavy lifting to unpack the Afghanistan situation to understand my statement. Yeah. If they even remember it, if they, if they even remember it, they might have to do a lot of heavy lifting to unpack it where it would be easily assumed by us because we just know mm-hmm. we're there, we're living it. Or this like is the, the danger that we gave uh, several weeks ago about COVID, right? Like the things yeah, that you can yep. imply right now because of COVID that everybody understands without you even mentioning the word. Yeah. So some of it is anytime you've got that social distance or, or that time distance and, and cultural difference, you've got the potential for misunderstanding if you're not on the in, mm-hmm. if you don't have the no, if you don't have the proper info. And, and unfortunately, because the distance is so great, uh, sometimes it takes some heavy lifting. So in that way, I, I am of the opinion that some more study of the scriptures can be helpful and can, can help our understanding. What I don't want to perpetuate though, is the idea that the scriptures are only of spiritual value if understood in this way. Mm-hmm. I think someone could come at Ephesians, not conclude anything about its anti-imperialness. Would I think there'd be missing some things that I think are there in the text and implied in the text? Yep. Would it mean that they're misunderstanding Ephesians? Not exactly. There are other aspects of Ephesians that aren't hinting at that whatsoever that are actually quite easily discernible. Mm-hmm. You know, Ephesians 1, you got that. I mean, Paul is projecting this identity of who God's people are in the Messiah and in Christ. And that's just easily pick upable. Or even the lifting Jesus up as 
Lord, right? And yeah. then yep. the idea of, seated above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. You know, with the, with the readers being you know seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Like, there's a lot of yep. there's a lot to live into there without the question of is this opposing Caesar, and then yeah. without the other very complicated question of well, what does that mean for us today? Yeah. Yeah. Because there, there are certain ways that Ephesians is calling us to live ethically and as the people of God that I think are easily identifiable. If you're, you know, the, the, if you're somebody who's never been to Bible school, mm-hmm. but you're just reading your scriptures faithfully and, and, and thoroughly. Um, on the other hand, we, I think we do miss something ethically. We aren't able to engage some of those questions. It doesn't mean that we're, we're lost. It doesn't mean that, that God can't speak to us through the text, but it does mean we might miss some things or we might misunderstand some things to where Romans 13, based on our social located readings, might lead us in a simple, so-called simple reading to conclude, yes, see, we just have to obey the government. Mm. But the richness it could bring ethically, right. if we understand some of the in- interworkings of how this would have been heard by people living in the city of Rome, yeah. in the same way how Ephesians might have been heard by people living under Roman imperial rule, means that there might be a richness for us, even in the modern world, that we're not usually catching. doesn't yeah. mean the reading of scripture is impossible. It doesn't mean God can't speak to us. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that we can get a more rich understanding and a more rich call to live in a certain way if we pick up on it. Yeah, uh, makes sense. I'm also reminded that this fact is the most humbling thing about having a PhD. Any child, any child who couldn't even have read living in the first century would have probably understood this text better than me. And would have been able to correct you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, 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 what it means is this, is that the re- reason why PhDs are meaningful now is because we're trying to do the heavy lifting uh, of, of bridging that gap between mm-hmm. our context and theirs that would have been unnecessary for any person living at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so I am always humbled by that thinking no matter who the most learned PhD in the world is on the Roman empire, on early Christianity, they would be put to shame by any child living at that time. Right. That's a humbling thing, but it also means that it's not in the, in and of itself an elitist reading mm-hmm. necessarily is actually trying to just get to ground level. Right. To whatever extent that's possible, yeah. you know, and no, by ground sense. level, I mean that very loosely. So, so when you think back on this series and the series before it, when we were kind of giving an overview of your dissertation, who, who is our implied audience? <laughs> Well, in some ways, our implied audience are are, are the are the uh, the folks who who asked us to talk about this, um, and they're probably regretting their decision now. <laughs> they may not be part of the empirical audience anymore. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I think what I'm hoping that emerges from this is, you know, I think without reading my work, some of this is going to sound like what? Like I don't get this. It's, and it's it can easily go over people's heads without having any background in things like speech act theory and whatnot. Mm. I think that could cause this issue of like, well, I don't quite get this. But if anything, I think the, the, the hope and the implied audience in some of this or anybody who's interested in reading the Bible and who is also wondering um, how various interpretations emerge and how to assess like the meaning of the Bible. Like, how do we know what the Bible means and, and what tools do we use to kind of arrive at that meaning? And you might not think that speech act theory is relevant to you, but what I'm hoping you might think is, well, what methods do I use to understand it? And are there problems with that method or limitation with that method? 
Are there prospects in that method and hopeful things that can lead us to not just a right understanding, but to a liberatingly righteous living? Mm. (laughs) So it ain't just about, do we get it? Do we understand it? It's also about what's the call for us then to live. Right. And, and that's where I think our hermeneutics matters because the way we approach the text will cause us to arrive at different conclusions about also the way within which we should live. I think I'm also mindful. So, so we talked before about complex implied uh, audience, right? And I, yeah, I'm yeah. mindful of people who maybe grew up or at one point were uh, closely affiliated with Christian faith and with Bible reading and who kind of became skeptical or maybe very yeah. much became skeptical about what people said the Bible was saying. Right. Yeah. People who, who said, you know, I don't know if the Bible actually said that or, or maybe what I don't know is whether, yeah, is the Bible just a, a tool in the hands of people who happen to have power and they're just using it oppressively yeah. or whatever, you know? And, and I think I'm mindful of that potential component of the implied audience. Cause I think yeah. that one of the things that's super interesting to me and what you're doing is on the one hand, you're saying scripture matters, right? The, the Bible matters. And, and we haven't talked about why that's a whole other question. Um, yeah. but the, <laughs> so what are, what are our words doing, right? Part of what your words are doing, uh, is, you know, on the illocutionary level, and then I'm making it uh, I'm, I'm doing, performing it through a locution. We're saying the Bible matters, yeah. but we're at the same time saying how we approach the Bible matters mm-hmm. and it, and it's not neutral, What we bring the, the interpretive assumptions that we're making matter and paying careful attention to those things doesn't necessarily mean that we turn away from faith, it may mean that we yeah. actually turn to something that we experience as a richer, deeper faith and perhaps even a more subversive faith, uh, which I think can be very <laughs> appealing sometimes to to say, wait, there may be more here and, and actually being more intentional about biblical study yeah. may lead us to more complex understandings of what it means to follow Jesus in the modern world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think some folks maybe who have been in a situation where they've heard a certain interpretation of the Bible and they've started to become very dissatisfied with that or very reactionary against it. This could be a helpful episode for them because I think one of the dangers is that some of the people who've taught us the Bible have conflated biblical meaning with their interpretation of mm-hmm. the biblical meaning. Right. We can affirm that the Bible has meaning and also admit that we have a constructed meaning based on our hermeneutical approaches. Yeah. And I think the frustration is, is there are some people out there who have thought that the biblical meaning doesn't come through any hermeneutical lenses. It's just, it's there. And mm-hmm. then when they're articulating their views, they're, they're taking it as if, see, this is what the Bible means. It's just right here. Yeah. It's just right. Where it would be more helpful if people admitted their hermeneutical perspectives and approaches and and you don't have to do it in the kind of, you know, man, intricate way that I'm forced to do it in a PhD. But, but what it encourages us to then ask is what are our hermeneutical assumptions? Mm -hmm. 
right? And, and how might those assumptions lead us in certain directions with interpreting the Bible? Right. I, I, I always hear people say the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says this, this, or this. And I kind of got to the point where I'm not as interested in what the Bible says. I'm more interested in what the Bible means by what it says. Mm. In other words, there are a lot of people who can flash little wording at, at us and then they, but they're using it out of context. They're using it in ways that are even uh, violent uses of the scripture against mm. people. I would encourage them to, to think about is sure you've, grabbed some of what the Bible says in its words, but have you actually understood what it means with those words? I think this is part of where it will have to come back and do an episode on this, because I think the question of the narrative hermeneutic and storied knowledge becomes so important for getting at what you're talking about. It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. And it it works this way in in reality and that like you couldn't, my earlier comments about Afghanistan wouldn't make any sense if if we're not able to import in the whole narrative of what's happened with Afghanistan. And by whole narrative, I'm not meaning that anyone would have to have done their historical research on the Afghanistan conflict to understand my words, but you would have to understand the big picture stories that I'm invoking, mm-hmm. um, which, which for some people might be images of, of Afghani people, you know, clinging to American planes as they're leaving mm-hmm. and, you know, um, the airport, it might be, it might be some of those images from, you know, from the news and from that are flashing on our minds. And so to say that you need a narrative hermeneutic is in a lot of ways to say, you, you have to have some understanding of the stories that I might be invoking the minute that I, that I'm using pretty simple words, but to, to challenge a big picture idea. Yeah. We'll get more on that maybe another time, but um, there was something else I wanted to say about the audience too. Something about that's relevance, I think for people and maybe for people who aren't necessarily consider themselves very religious or um, I'm not sure we, we, that, that they wouldn't, um, you know, uh, drive with all the <laughs> detailed analysis here. Um, I think maybe one of the other elements of the implied audience would be anyone who has an interest in intellectually honest interpretations of anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like no, the I think recognition right. that I, I think hopefully the conversation we're having doesn't presuppose that you have to be a person of faith to engage in questions of interpretation and, and and actually, yeah, I mean, I, my hope is that we're having this conversation in a way that it invites people into that same conversation. Cause there are people from all sorts of different backgrounds and disciplines that care about how we interpret reality. Yeah. And what, what I've realized, uh, I think in the PhD process is, is it teaches you some important things. Um, it teaches you number one, you have to put your cards on the table. Mm. In other words, to the, to the best of your ability. And we all have aspects of what, what, what kind of is behind our understanding of things that we're not always able to articulate. But I think what it's saying is, is that when you're, when you're presenting a perspective to the, to the best of your ability, admit where you're coming from right? and admit why your perspective makes sense to you using certain methods or using certain assumptions. So that I think can be helpful to anybody, regardless of whether it's like, I don't, not interested in the Bible. Um, they, it might just be a way to encourage people to say, Hey, you know, when you're, when you're having political conversations with people, like admit your, your assumptions, admit where you're coming from, understand your limitations that, that your own perspective can only take you so far. Um, and those I think are things that PhDs do well. Mm. Also, I think uh, something I'm learning and something that might not have come across yet in this podcast series is in your PhD work, you, you, you learn to become hopefully more kind and respectful of your conversation partners, even mm. those you disagree with. Right. 
And so far, I've taken some definite critiques of various ways of understanding Ephesians or of approaching Bible reading. Um, But my hope and my work is that in the midst of those critiques, actually, there are some benefits and some understanding there as to why these approaches have been taken um, and what they can offer. So even when I'm talking about you know, some of the methods of Bible interpretation only look at language. There's plenty of things that that actually has brought as a benefit. So, so there are those two things I think that that PhD in some ways has has taught me. Well, I've yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, the third series where we actually get into talking about uh, what you conclude. So. Great. Cool. This brings the second series on Justin's dissertation to a close. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee. Reed Peters is a recognized patron of the show. As always, you can join us at patreon.com slash Rooms for more conversation and bonus content. We hope you can join us for coffee again next time. Well, thanks. Yeah. Talk to you here soon. All right. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Bye.